Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October 21st, 2016, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. Time for the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Call. This is a show you helped to write because all these questions come for you for members of our Expert Council. Remember, we do have 13 members of the Expert Council, and you can find out more about them at our website. You can click uh, Hover on About tab, and you'll see a link that says Meet the Expert Council, or you can find uh, a link to that and all the Expert Council's uh, websites uh, in today's show notes as well. Uh, we'll have a pretty good uh, lineup for you guys today. It's been a while since we had an Expert Council call due to my, uh, my vacation. We're going to hear from six expert council members today, and I'm going to take a question, too, that I thought was an interesting one for a wind-up on a Friday. Anyway, we are going to hear about radios for short-distance communications, like on a homestead from Tim Glantz. We're going to hear about cooking ducks beyond the same old, same old with Chef Keith Snow. We'll hear about the good, bad, and ugly of 770 accounts with John Pugliano. What's a 770 account? That's what we have John Pugliano to tell us about stuff like this. Remember, financial IQ is extremely important in today's modern age. We have the ins and outs of tri-fuel generator adapters from Stephen Harris, pond and runoff filtration with Ben Falk, and an update on Wheaton Laboratories with Paul Wheaton. And I have a question on hard skills and knowledge for the next generation. That'll be me taking that as the anchor at the end of today's lineup. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheets, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. In that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The episode is 1888, so we're going to look at the year 1888. Alex Shrugged has three for us today. We have Letters from Hell and Jack the Ripper. We have Tesla and the AC electric motor. And we have Casey at the Bat. Now, uh, I'm not going to read that one, but you all know this, the poem Casey at the Bat. It was written this year. In other news, we also have The Merchant of Death Reads His Own Obituary. Alfred Noble, the inventor of dynamite, finds his own name in the obituaries, labeled as the Merchant of Death. It is a mistake, but he plans for a better obituary by changing his will to establish the Nobel Prize for Science, Literature, and Peace. Uh, we have the Great Blizzard in this year, 1888, that kills 400 across the U.S. East Coast. This blizzard is uh, that every TV weather guy and gal measures the next snowfall prediction. It's a bad blizzard, but we're worse ones before this. Much, much worse. George Eastman produces the Kodak Box Camera. He also introduces Roll Film, which will inspire the creation of the motion picture camera, No BS. This guy will be a major player in the future. You know, I'm going to say something about Kodak that, that talks, that, that explains not capitalizing on, on opportunities for you. In the 1970s, Kodak 
came up with the first digital camera. They considered it a niche, a, a, a kind of a, 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 a goofy thing that no one would ever really want. They had about a 25-year head start on the industry, and Kodak is a shell of its former company uh, size today. It's almost nothing because it stuck to what it knew, the old technology of film, and it didn't evolve. There's a lesson there for anyone in business today. Uh, next up, though, let's go ahead. I'm going to read you Letters from Hell and Jack the Ripper because I have an interesting take on this that uh, a little, little different, not disagreeing, but different than Alex, and I like when we have different takes on the same historical fact. Let's be clear. We are talking about one of the first modern serial killers. Before this time, such killings were attributed to werewolves and vampires. But today, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is the modern horror fantasy. People come to the city on business or pleasure or just to get away from the small town life. Soon, letters from worried parents arrive at police stations. The city offers anonymity, and a new electric lights allow more activity at night. Newcomers are often met at the train station by a helpful stranger with an easy smile and a friendly offer. Most young people return home a few months later, a little sadder and a lot wiser, but if you end up in the back alley or in the river, it's tough out there in the big city. No one really knows when Jack the Ripper started his rampage on East End of London. Maybe it was with Emma Smith in the early hours of April 3rd. She is viciously assaulted with a blunt object. Please don't make me tell you how. She slips into a coma and dies the next day. Other women of the night fall prey to the serial killer in various gruesome ways, including the defleshing of their faces down to the bone. The Whitechapel Vigilance Committee is organized to patrol the streets. In a letter to the committee postmarked October 15th, Jack the Ripper includes part of a kidney of Kate Conway. He says he has eaten the other part. The letter is not signed, but it is returned with the address, has a return address of hell and ends with catch me when you can. He is never caught and never identified. The official body count is five, which is amazingly low considering the fear of the name Jack the Ripper still generates in the modern day, but is the first case of a vicious crime that turned into a free feeding frenzy of fear by mass media. My take by Alex Shrugged. After reading the accounts of the murders and viewing the photographs of murder scenes, it was ill. There were several letters from people claiming to be Jack the Ripper, but from hell letters considered them authentic. A few years later, mystery writer Patricia Conway investigated the murders using the forensic techniques using DNA sampling from a letter um, a few years ago. Not a few years later, a few years ago. Patricia Conway investigated the murders using modern forensic techniques, including DNA sampling from the letter supposedly sent by Jack the Ripper. She is convinced the murderer was an artist named Walter Sickert, but who really knows? He was sick, huh? In the eight, late 1880s, detective work was in its infancy. People were against deploying plainclothes spies to entrap the public. Frankly, even today, with every TV crime show displaying modern forensic techniques, the public is not convinced. Take a look at old black and white episodes of Dragnet, and you'll see Sergeant Joe Friday telling solid citizens that detectives are just there to help the public. Just the facts, man, was the motto of the show. They were not only teaching the public to trust police, they were teaching the police to round up the facts and not just the usual suspects. Um, so my technique, my uh, take on this is, okay, this guy kills five people. He has the world in fear of him, and he kills five people. There's probably people dying every day in London at this time of like, oh, I don't know, the cold, the flu, right? Um, there's probably people being killed by just random jerks that want to steal shit, and there's probably random jerks that are stealing shit that have killed more people than Jack the Ripper. But because of the way it's done and the way it's presented, people have a, an overwhelming fear of something that's not likely to cause you harm in the first place. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? How about the hysteria around guns? 
And we have more people die every year in car wrecks than from guns. And if you're not a gangbanger living in Chicago uh, or New Orleans or something like that, your odds of being shot go way, way down. And if we take away all of the people that is like gang-on-gang gang violence with guns or legitimate use of guns in defense of life and property, the number goes way, 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 way the hell down. But yet we have you know the media drumming up an irrational fear where little kids are afraid that somebody's going to come into school any day and shoot them. And you can just go on. Zika virus, the swine flu. It's just the media loves to make you afraid. And if you think it's new, we're talking about 1888 here. They just have better tools for it today, and they can put it out across an information stream a lot faster today than they could in 1888, thanks to things like video and audio and the Internet and what have you. But it's the same shit, making people afraid of something that's probably not going to hurt them, even if it is. Really, really bad. Like, oh, I don't know, maybe um, ISIS, right? Some of you know where that cadence comes from in that that statement. But uh, hell, why not? Why not play that for you before we get into the first question today? Just to take some of you guys back to the 1980s and Mr. Dana Carvey. Uh-huh. I just can't think. Could it be Satan? Who was it? Who could it possibly be? Was it? Oh, I don't know. Satan? Well, who would you do that with, huh? Satan? Ah, the 1980s when things were simpler and they really weren't. We just kind of look back at our own youth and think that things were better then because, well, we were younger then. And keep that in mind as we uh, hold out for our song of the day at the end of today's show and a lesson for our young people of today with that. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, first question we have today. We have a question for Tim at Old Grouch Military Service. Remember that Tim is not just an expert on military surplus and military gear. He's also a really great hand radio guy and this question is not really about ham radio but just radio in general and keeping in touch on a relatively small homestead i think about 11 acres was what was in the question anyway tim man take it away hey jack and everybody out there listening to tsp tim glance here from old grouch's military surplus an amateur radio operator w4 wtf with the expert panel answer here uh for somebody i didn't catch a name there but they were asking what is a good option for communication on a homestead about 13 acres where they don't have very good cell phone reception, so they need some other options. And uh, they said looking at handhelds thought would be their best thing, and I agree with them there. And when you come down to handhelds, uh, there are a couple considerations. The first thing is, since it's a homestead, you want something that everybody in the family can easily use. Uh, that kind of precludes ham radio unless everybody's willing to go get a license. So uh, your two main options there are going to be Muir's Radio and GMRS. Muir's Radio is a uh, kind of a citizen's band radio service, much like CB. However, it operates in the VHF uh, frequency range in the 150 megahertz range. Uh, you're only limited to a very few number of channels, and you're limited to 2 watts legally, although a lot of people run 5 watts, since that's kind of the standard for handhelds, and the FCC doesn't seem to care. No license is required. Uh, you just pretty much go. GMRS, now one thing I'm going to say here, if people have had their opinion of GMRS radio tainted badly by all those cheap Chinese bubble pack radios that promise to give you a 100-mile range on a AAA battery or some such nonsense, uh, they're junk. When I talk about GMRS radio, I'm talking about using commercial-quality UHF radios, the same ones like your police or fire department might be used or used in the past. And use it higher power, you know, 5 watts on a handheld, and on GMRS you could use 50 watts on a base. 
Now, GLRS does require a license. However, all you do is you send in the money for a five-year license. I think it comes out to about $15, $20 a year. It's under $20 a year, I know that. You get a call sign back from the FCC, and your entire household is covered. And they're pretty generous on the terms of household. So one-time license fee, and you can use it. Now, the advantages of GMRS over yours are that you have more channels. You can legally run more power. And, in fact, you can run up to 50 watts. So uh, an ideal thing in a homestead situation, especially if you you know had one bigger than, than the 13 acres or if you had uh, difficult terrain or construction, is that you could actually take and run a mobile radio as a base and have a 25 or a 40 or a 50 watt base radio with an antenna mounted on your roof and have much greater range. However, with 13 acres, you're probably not going to need to do that. So you're really looking at Muir's radio and GMRS. For both of those, I want to tell you, you're better off buying a commercial-grade quality product like a Motorola or a Kenwood uh, or a, one of those than you are going and buying some off-the-shelf thing. Don't buy those little bubble pack radios at Walmart because... You're a homesteader. You're going to be beating on things. You're going to be out in the rain. You're going to get it dirty. You're going to be getting wet. You want radios that were made to handle all that kind of dirt and muck and rain and everything else. Uh, what I would look at is getting some used uh, radios. If you're going to go uh, mirrors, then looking at VHF. You're going to go GMRS, then look at UHF, uh, eBay, or from some other vendor. And look at what they're selling and uh, ask them, hey, can you program this to Muir's or GMRS for me and get the product? And you'll be ready to go. And you'll have a much, much more rugged product. And there are a lot of them out there on the market right now that you can pick up, you know, you know, well under $100 if you shop around on eBay. Uh, so if you want to look at that, uh, that's the way I would suggest going. And uh, I'm on the road right now, but if... Uh, you email me, Tim, at oldgrouch.com with kind of some more specifics, or if anybody else does that, I'll be glad to send you some specific links to some options I think might work for you. Thanks a lot, and I hope everybody has a great day. And as always, Jack, thanks for the great podcast. Okay, I also wanted to kind of point something out. So there are there are four primary mirrors frequencies. But if I remember right, it's either four or five, like, sub-frequencies under each of the main frequencies that are just slightly different than the primaries. And the reason that might be important is that you can maybe move to one of those and it is less likely that someone in the area using MERS is using you know, a full frequency scanner that's scanning all of those sub-frequencies. And if they're only on the main frequencies, you have a little more operational security. It's probably not important, but I thought you'd like to know that it's available. And the other thing is there are motion detectors that operate on the mirror's frequencies that you can incorporate with that communication system. That's something we talked about kind of a lot toward the beginning of the Survival Podcast way back in the day when we had a mirror's radio sponsor. But those are another thing you can take a look at. So anyway, with that, I have a question now. A question I'd love to hear the answer to because it's about cooking ducks. And I have a few ducks around here, and some of them need to be cooked. So with that, Chef Keith, let's talk about cooking ducks, brother. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Christian, I wanted to answer your question about working with ducks. Now, what a great thing that you've got a flock of ducks. This is a good problem to have, and uh, so many people are getting into ducks these days, and 
then you have to figure out what to do with them. So um, in your in your question, you talk about the uh, KISS method. Keep it simple, stupid. Well, I'm going to offer you two suggestions if you have ducks. And, you know, these are uh, definitely classic ways to prepare duck. And a lot of people just think of duck. They want duck breast and the rest of it they kind of don't know what to do with. Now, the rest of it is where the real magic happens. Now, um, you've heard me talk a lot about France before. They do some wonderful things with ducks over there. And I've witnessed those things up close before. So we're going to talk about two things. Um, You need to make duck confit, which is um, an amazing recipe that uses the duck legs, a lot of duck fat. There's a recipe um, at harvesteating.com for that. I'm going to ask Jack to put it in the show notes. But one of the more simple ways to work with duck is making something called rillettes. And that is spelled R-I-L-L-E-T-E-S. And I've made this with duck, with pork, and I've eaten a lot of both in France before, and they are really magical things to eat. Um, there's nothing better for a picnic, and, and that's the thing that's great about it. You can go out on a rustic picnic with your friends or family or whatever and open up a little crock of you know, duck or pork riettes and have an amazing time. And you can also have it at a fancy cocktail party. So this is a pretty versatile dish. So let's talk about making some duck riette. Now, there's several methods. And you'll see usually two where the, the duck is um, cured and braised. And then you'll also see uh, an easier way where it's uh, roasted. And we're going to talk about that second way today. What you need to do is mix up um, a spice mixture. And I'll have the recipe for this uh, on the website as well. And I'll ask Jack to link to that. Now, kosher salt, dry tarragon, and allspice. This is going to be your um, spice mixture. Take your duck that's properly prepared, ready to go. It's plucked. It's cleaned. All that. You're going to season the inside of the cavity and then also rub this mixture over the entire duck. Now, inside of the cavity of the duck, you're going to make um, a very uh, aromatic mixture. You're going to take a bunch of cleaned parsley, um, about maybe two oranges. You take the peel off two oranges. You'll have about a three-inch piece of ginger chopped up, about seven or eight garlic cloves, and a couple of bay leaves. Just toss this together and stuff it inside the duck. Now you want to take the duck and put it um, in a baking sheet. Now, good thing to do is to either um, line it with foil. That's probably the best way. And just uh, put the duck down and wrap it up with the foil. And then you're going to put it in the oven for five hours, 250 degrees. So that's a slow oven for five hours. And that's going to allow the duck to really become very tender and lovely. And all those aromas that are happening in there are kind of locked in with the foil. And you get a tender duck. So what you do at the end is you take it out after five hours. It should be uh, very easy to pull at that point. And um, just set it on top of the stove, open the foil up, and you need to let this thing cool for, I don't know, maybe two hours for it to come down to room temperature. And once it does that, wrap it back up, put it into the refrigerator. And you're going to need to refrigerate this thing, I would say, at least eight hours, or maybe you could plan it that this is done, um, comes out of the oven, you know, maybe, let's say, eight o'clock at night. You allow it to cool for two hours, wrap it up, put it in the fridge, and then the next morning, um, maybe Saturday morning, you're ready to deal with it. Now, the first thing to do is open it up 
and put the duck on a board. Now, there's going to be a lot of fat. There's going to be gelatin from the bones that have come out after that slow roasting and cooling. Now, the gelatin and the fat are crucial. Do not throw that out. Take your duck and pick it clean with your fingers. It's the only way to really do it. Get all the meat into the bowl of your food processor being careful not to have any bones in there. And then all of the bones and wings and everything, carcass, you're going to take that whole thing and put it into um, a bag and freeze it because you'll make duck stock later, which is amazing stuff. But we're not talking about that now. So once you have the meat and the bone separated into the food processor, what you're going to do is um, then turn your attention to the stuff that's in the foil, and that's going to be fat and gelatin. Use a spatula, your fingers, whatever you have to do, and scrape every last bit of that into a sauce pot um, and just heat it up. It'll melt back down, and if you just you don't need to stir it or anything. Once it heats, you remove it from the heat, and it'll separate. The kind of uh, dark mixture will be at the bottom, and then the clear fat will be floating on the top. Reserve about... I don't know, half a cup, take about half a cup of the clear fat off and set it aside. Then um, take that mixture and um, just use a ladle, mix it up, and then put, you know, it, it, this is really, it depends on how the meat looks. But I would say a cup, a cup and a half, if you've got that much, into the food processor to moisten up the meat. Now pulse your duck meat and this liquid in your food processor until it combines. Now you're not looking for it to be, you know, a complete smooth puree, but you don't want giant chunks of duck meat either, somewhere in between. That's kind of up to you. I've seen it both ways. I like it a little more smooth um, for me. That's how it works. So once you do that, transfer this mixture to a work bowl. Now, everything is all cooked. You're going to want to taste the duck, and you're probably going to have to re-season it a bit with some salt and um, possibly a little more black pepper. Um, and I think I forgot to tell you, but in the, in the first spice mixture, it's kosher salt, dry tarragon, allspice, and black pepper. Anyway, once you re-season your duck, you're going to take some more of the, um, stock and just put a little bit more to keep it nice and moist. And then you need to add alcohol. Traditionally, it's something like cognac. If you can't afford that because it's pretty pricey, a little brandy will work or even a sweet, like a sauterne, which is a, maybe a dessert wine. And I've had it. Um, both ways, and they're totally different but equally lovely. So you'll put a little bit of alcohol in there, you'll re-season it, a little bit of the additional moistening from those liquids that you melted, mix it all up, and then the best thing to do is to put it in a crock. Um, most of you aren't going to have a, a French crock with a, you know, the bale and the rubber seal, um, but a little canning jar will work great, you know, maybe a, a quart canning jar, any type of container. It does not really matter as long as it has a tight-fitting lid. So you'll take your rillettes, pack them into a container, and then take your reserved um, clear melted fat and uh, pour that over the top, cover it up, and that needs to refrigerate. And this is where it's a pain in the neck. You're going to want to be eating it, but you need to let it refrigerate overnight because it really sets the texture because you've whipped it kind of in the food processor. It has fat in there. It's going to congeal and become this wonderful spread. And this stuff, guys and gals, this stuff is heaven. And once you do this recipe, it is super easy to do. I mean, you can prepare this duck. Um, if the duck is ready, you can have it 
into the oven in 15 minutes. It's nothing to do it. It cooks itself for five hours. You basically let it cool. It's in the refrigerator overnight. It doesn't take, the hardest part is just shredding and or picking the, the duck clean. But once you have that recipe down, if you learn how to do that and also to make duck cone feet, you're just a duck superhero at that point and life will be good on your duck farm. So Christian, I hope that helps. Sorry it was so long, but I'm, I'm describing a, you know, 12 hour process in what, what have I been? Eight or nine minutes. So, uh, hopefully you'll, you'll give it a, a whirl. Now I wanted to let everybody know, all of you, um, harvest eating spice fans that I am, uh, stocking up on spices for the holiday season with four new ones. I've got a new steakhouse blend, which is really great. A Greek seasoning. My seafood seasoning is back and a new Mexican seasoning as well. Uh, also check out harvesteating.com. I've put up a lot of videos recently. One or two that I think y'all would really like is a Thai fish salad. This is awesome. Really great dish. Also one just posted moments ago. It's a baked stuffed apple. Very simple, but delicious. So do check those out. Make sure you subscribe. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in to the Survival Podcast, supporting Jack and also supporting Harvest Eating. And uh, wish me luck, folks. I'm about to leave on a camping trip with my seven-year-old son. He is now a Cub Scout. So we're going to be uh, at a Cub Scout camping trip. There's going to be over a 1,000 rowdy scouts there. So uh, I'll be sleeping on the ground in a tent for two days. So this may be the last time you hear from me. Anyway, thanks so much, folks. Take care. So I, uh, I've got those two links in the, uh, the show notes for those two recipes, confit and rillets. Um, I'm going to try rillets. I'll tell you that duck confit is a special kind of wonderful. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Next time I have a question for uh, John Pugliano on 770 accounts. And, uh, again, I said a lot of you might be like, the heck is a 770 account? Well, you'll learn about that and, and exactly uh, what the, the good, the bad, and the ugly is all about it right now from John Pugliano. Hey, TSP listeners, today we have a question from Jim, and he's asking about 770 accounts. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with a 770 account, this is a form of permanent life insurance. It comes with that name, 770, because that's the line number in the IRS code or, or whatever that addresses that particular form of insurance. It's kind of like a, a 401k plan derives its name from the line item in the tax code that, that uh, created the 401k. So we'll get to a little bit more about what a 770 account is. But first, let's read Jim's question because it's a complicated question. So here's the essence of Jim's question. In his particular situation, he has a bank account where he keeps a, a, a balance of money. He loans that money to himself to make real estate investments. He purchases properties, uses the money to fix them up. And then over a period of maybe one month to 18 months, he flips that real estate, pays himself back the loan, and then goes on and does it with another property. Jim's problem is, is that in between real estate investments, his money's sitting in a bank account and it's not collecting any interest. And so the reason he's interested in these 770 programs is because in most cases they claim to offer a high rate of return. They claim the ability for you to be able to borrow money from yourself with no interest payments. And then there's some also other tax advantages associated with them because they're a form of life insurance. So Jim has some other questions, but before I address those, let me go back and, and uh, talk a little bit more about what a 770 account is for those of you that are not aware of them. 
It's a form of permanent life insurance. And so permanent life insurance is different from term life insurance, as the name would imply, meaning that it is permanent. It's not based on a particular time frame of coverage like a term policy would be if you had a a 10 or 20 year life insurance policy. It's only effective over that term and it's non-renewable. Where with permanent life insurance, it's always renewable. And what permanent life insurance offers is that in addition to offering the life insurance component of it, you're also building a cash balance, meaning that it's a type of an investment program. Now, that doesn't come free. You're making that insurance permanent and building a cash reserve in that program because you're paying a a much, much higher premium every month than you would if you only had term life insurance. It's a financial investment tool, and it works for people that use it properly. Now, specifically to Jim's question and about the 770 accounts, my concern with 770 accounts is the way they're marketed. They're generally not marketed as permanent life insurance. You'll see sales pitches that say something like, learn the secret that wealthy people use that's now available to you. Or I've seen things that say something like, you know, 325 members of Congress use this program and you should too. Well, whenever I see things like that, my BS meter gets pegged. And again, this is not to say that permanent life insurance is bad. I just don't like the way they market these 770 programs. So can they get higher yields in a bank account? Well, yes, maybe if they're invested in the right uh, products. Can you borrow from yourself? Well, yes, in most cases, as far as I know, almost all permanent life insurance allow you to borrow against your cash balance, so there's nothing really new there. What you really need to be concerned with, not only with 770 accounts, but with any type of insurance or any type of financial product, is what are the hidden fees? You have to really dig down and read the small print and understand what the fees are and any types of penalties or withdrawals or time limits that you may not be aware of. That's what really costs you. Now, Jim also has some direct questions here. He asks how secure these accounts are from losses. Well, Jim, it's like anything else. It all depends on the financial stability of the of not only the insurance company that you're purchasing it from, so if they go insolvent, you're in trouble, it's also dependent on what they invested in. You have different type of investment options that you can use, and if you choose the wrong one, well, you'll lose money just like you would in the stock market. As far as their growth claims, you have to remember that past performance is no indicator of future results. With the low interest rates that we've seen over the last eight or nine years, I think that if this continues in the future, institutions like pension programs and insurance companies are going to have a really hard time delivering on their promised results because in most cases, they're counting on yearly returns of 7 or 8%. And this is at a time when you know 10-year treasuries are only paying something like 1.6%. That means that insurance companies and pension programs, just like any investor, are going to go out and have to take more risk to get that 7% return. And so if insurance companies are taking on more risk today than they did, say, 40 years ago to get similar returns, that's a concern to me, and nobody's really going to know how that plays out. Jim also asks, would his money in an insurance company be better protected from a Greek-style confiscation from the bank's? Jim, that's a whole other topic we can address, but I'm telling you, if you're worried about bail-ins in the United States, I think you're worried about the wrong thing. And it's not that I don't think the government's going to come in and steal from you. They're just not going to do it in that type of a format because we have a Federal Reserve and a Treasury that can print as much money as they want to. And even if something like FDIC insurance went bankrupt, the Fed would just come in and print the money to cover it. 
The differences that we see in places like Europe is that they have a common currency, but they're all individual countries that can't individually inflate their own currency. In the United States, they can and do inflate the currency however they want to. So rather than coming in and taking 10% of your bank account and making everybody angry, it's much more easy for the politicians to inflate the money 10%. They get the same effect, and the taxpayers are too stupid to know what happened. So I don't think you have to worry about your money being confiscated at banks, not U.S. banks anyways. As to other options to these 770 programs or different ways that you can fund if fund your real estate investments, well, Jim, you know the way we talk about permaculture where the, the problem is the solution, perhaps you might want to look at the fact that we have these low interest rates and you can't get any return on your money while it's sitting idle. You might look at that as the solution. And what I mean by that is instead of trying to get a return on this money that you're using to fund your real estate projects, maybe you should just be taking advantage of the fact that interest rates are so incredibly and historically low. So it may make sense for you to, instead of using your own money to fund these projects, just to, to uh, borrow money at really low rates and use that to flip your real estate. Now, I'm not someone that promotes debt for consumer purposes, but I think that if you have the talent and ability to make these real estate transactions profitable, then it probably makes sense for you to go out and borrow money at a really cheap rate and use that leverage to grow your real estate business. And then that extra uh, cash that you have available, will put that into long-term investments, such as owning real estate properties that would be paying you monthly rent or putting that money to work for you in the stock market. Because the bottom line on this is that the insurance policy that you would be purchasing, well, the yield that they're going to be paying you is going to come from real estate or from equity investments anyways. So why not just put your own money to work at that? Well, Jim, that's my two cents. If you'd like to hear more about my wealth building principles or my stock market commentary, please check out the Wealth Setting Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. Love and completely concur with John's advice there. I want to, I want to add something, though, because John hit on it, but he didn't kind of drive through the other side of it and explain to you how something can be a truth and a lie at the same time. So you will hear these accounts. And all this is, is is whole life. That's what this is, is whole life. And you'll hear them say, this is the secret that rich people use, or the, the, you know, so many members of Congress have this. Well, let me explain to you why. And it probably doesn't apply to you. The two words, inheritance tax. Many years ago when I was a consultant for uh, online marketing, I had a client who I sat down with, and he was trying to figure out how do I find more business because it gets into this whole you know solicitation uh, business, and he only works with accredited investors. This is this guy was a big time financial advisor. Like if you didn't have a net worth of two and a half million dollars, he wouldn't even talk to you. In fact, most of the stuff he did, you wouldn't qualify for. And uh, with my background in finance and insurance, we started talking about some of the things he did. He started he mentioned you know permanent insurance and I'm like what. Come on, you guys, you got to know better than that. Like, this, this, this really is a scam. You'd be better off insuring your life for next to nothing and then investing the money in some other vehicle. He said, that's true for you. That's not true for my clients. What? And like many things that are secrets of the rich, they're not secrets, just they only apply to the rich. So here's the deal. And this is actually a, a thing where like the rich aren't uh, getting over on you. They're getting over on government. So when you have an estate in excess of, I think it's like three million or three and a half million, it gets it gets nailed with inheritance tax. But do you know what is immune from inheritance tax? 
life insurance. So a lot of times these guys, either early on or as they get older, will take a huge sum of money and push it into whole life simply as an avoidance tactic because like I'm shitty rich. I have more money than I know what to do with. I want to make sure this money stays with my kids and family. So in addition to things um, you know, uh, like uh, trusts and stuff like that, this is another tactic that really wealthy people use to avoid inheritance taxes. So they put just tons of money in it. Basically, you got to think about it like this. You know how when the uh, Fed buys debt, you know, buys U.S. bonds, um, and no one else wants to buy a bond. So they've gone to the lender of last resort to expand the monetary supply. Now, the best way that the Fed could do that if they really wanted to is they would go to the U.S. Treasury and buy the bond directly. But they don't. They buy the bond from, you know who, the Goldman Sachs, right? So the the Fed says to the Goldman Sachs, hey, go buy like a couple billion dollars worth of this shit, and you're only going to hold it for like a couple weeks, and we're going to buy it from you as part of quantitative easing or whatever. And then it looks better because it doesn't look like we're buying our own debt, even though that's exactly what we're doing. Goldman exists as a broker in the middle. Now, Goldman knows full well what's going on, and they don't care because in a billion-dollar transaction, they're going to make a few million to do very little. Okay, So that's kind of what the life insurance companies are doing here for really wealthy people. They're creating these huge policies, and they know full well that it's just the guy stuffing his money away. But I don't think it works very well for the individual investor that's not worth, you know. If, 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 if this would work well for you, you have a totally different type of financial advisor than the person that's probably trying to sell it to you. If your financial advisor or financial planner is bringing this to you as a, as a, a strategy within a portfolio of things and you're a very wealthy individual, it probably makes sense. For you and me, I recommend term life and pocket the difference, invest the difference, what have you. Go do something with it. Um, that's that's what I got to say. Uh, next up, I have a question for Stephen Harris on TriFuel Generator Adapter Systems. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. This one is from Chris. I was wondering on uh, Stephen Harris's thoughts on tri-fuel adapters for generators, specifically the Yamaha 2-kilowatt inverter generator, and, and thought since I have a natural gas supply in my house, well, this would be a great option. Are there any specific types of adapters or brands that I should stay away from or you would prefer? Thank you, Chris. For all those of you listening, a tri-fuel adapter means your generator will run off of gasoline, natural gas, or or propane. So either one of the fuels. And actually, it'll run off any one of the three fuels. If you put a natural gas or a propane adapter onto your generator, it does not interrupt the gasoline supply. You can still fill it up with gasoline and run it off gasoline. In fact, there's a little valve they give you to go in there to turn off the gasoline so it does not flow while the natural gas or propane is going. Look, here's the deal. The natural gas system in the United States and Canada and in the rest of the world is not fragile. It is reliable. It stays up and running in a blackout. The power is gone, the electricity is out, but the natural gas is still running. It was when I went through the blackout of 2003 in Michigan for three days. It was still up and running. And as you can see by the fires that from houses after Hurricane Sandy and after earthquakes in California, it's still up and running. The natural gas system is powered by 
Natural gas, so it stays operational even during a blackout. During Hurricane Sandy, when it stri- as I said, when it stripped homes off their foundation, there were natural gas fires, small ones, that burned for days. It took them days to turn off the natural gas. In California, where there are earthquakes, they will turn off the natural gas system after a quake. But for the rest of the USA and Canada, natural gas will stay on and be there for you in a disaster. It's like having an unlimited supply of gasoline available that you don't have to store. You would be a bloody fool to not run a generator off of propane or natural gas for as long as you can before you had to switch to gasoline. The same goes for your propane pig that fuels your natural gas furnace or your stove. If you have a 500-gallon pig, call the other propane company and tell them you want a 1,000-gallon pig that you put in the... Tell them you put in a new heater for your garage, and they'll upgrade your pig for you. So if you have a 1,000-gallon pig... Uh, and again, for you who don't know, a pig is a propane tank that sits in your backyard. It's the big white thing. It's called a pig. Don't take any offense by it. It's, I don't think the propane's offended if I called it a pig. So the thing is, propane, like natural gas, it never spoils. Ever. Ever. It's a great fuel to run your generator. It will never spoil. It will never change. It will never degrade. It's all the ultimate fuel for your generator. And your generator runs really clean on propane and natural gas. I mean, like very little oil contamination. Um, you still have to change your oil about every 100 hours. Don't forget that, okay? If you're running a generator or a, a, a whole house generator, and it's running for four days, 24 hours a day, you got to turn it off and change oil about every 100 hours. Consult with your manual and your supplier. Now, I still advocate the storing of gasoline, like I do in the fuel and fuel storage class at stephen1234.com, or in the one five-gallon-a-can-month rotation method by our wonderful host, Jack Spirko. Highly recommend you store gasoline, and I think a gallon a month, not sorry, a gallon, a five-gallon can a month is a great place to start. Now, if you have a generator and you want it to run off of propane or natural gas, the number one place to go to is propanecarbs.com. P-R-O-P-A-N-E-C-A-R-B-S.com. They have a no-drill carb that will bolt on right in front of your throttle body before the air cleaner. It'll bolt on, and the propane gets intermixed in there and goes into the carburetor, and it runs perfectly. You can depend upon it. Now, also, another place is Central Main Diesel, C-E-N-T-R-A-L-M-A-I-N-E. Diesel, D-I-E-S-E-L, Central Maine Diesel, as in the state of Maine.com. They have uh, drilled carburetors, which is what I have because the no drills weren't available when I did it. I have a Honda EU2000i with a tri-fuel kit on it with a drilled carburetor, 
and it does run off of gasoline, propane, and natural gas, and I have done this for hundreds of hours. I even run it off of wood gas from a gasifier, and it ran fine, except my wood gas was dirty, and I clogged up the carburetor, and that cost me $500 to have that fixed and replaced, but that's a whole other story. Now, there are propane conversion kits on Amazon. You want to go search for Honda Propane Conversion Kit on Amazon or Yamaha Propane Conversion Kit, and you will find some no-drill propane kits on Amazon. So like I said, you want the no-drill version. This means it bolts onto the air intake. Drilled means you replace the carb with one that's drilled, and it has a hole in it for the natural gas or propane to go into the carburetor. I got the drilled ones. Like I said, the non-drilled ones were not available when I got mine. So I want to emphasize, when you put the conversion kit on, it will still run off of gasoline. Now, the difference between running off of propane and natural gas is there is a screw adapter on the top of the diaphragm gas regulator. And you will have to open up the screw to allow more natural gas in than propane for it to run at the same speed and load because natural gas is less dense than propane. Uh, natural gas is more fluffy than propane. Propane is a more dense, fuel-dense gas. So you screw it down, and you let less propane in, and it works. It is that simple. It's not hard. Trust me, a little fooling around with it with a screwdriver, and your generator will be working just fine. If you are, If it's running in your house, and all of a sudden your refrigerator comes on and it conks out the generator, you go out and you open up the screw a little bit more, restart the generator, and it will power your refrigerator and stuff just fine. So it takes a little bit of adjustment. All the details will be in the manual. It's not very hard. Do not be intimidated by it. Do not be scared by it. But by all means, definitely get a conversion kit. And uh, on uh, solar1234.com, I have a thing I show you of how to get – I have the complete receipt from Home Depot, and I show you how to uh, tap into the natural gas line or the propane line going to your water heater. You know, there's a little tail off the bottom of the line going to the water heater. I show you how to tap into that and how to use an airline. An airline will hold propane and natural gas just fine. No, it won't leak through the damn line, okay? If it holds air, it'll hold propane and natural gas. Propane and natural gas molecule is much bigger than nitrogen and oxygen. It's not going to get through the airline. But I show you how to use a flexible airline to run it to your generator outside of the house. Your propane and natural gas generator still needs to be outside of the house, outside of the garage when you're running it to run it safely because of potential exhaust emissions from the generator getting back into the house. This is not something you would want to do the way I show you if you have kids around the house. You do not want to do this before a disaster. You would want to do it after a disaster 
and then you want want to keep the kids away from it because it is propane or natural gas running through a line that you can turn on and off with a valve through a hose that is on with hose barbs and a hose clamp onto an adapter. So those are some cautions. If you want it done professionally, uh, go to a plumber and tell them you need a natural gas line there outside your house. In fact, you might as well install a propane or a natural gas barbecue at the same time and say you need a natural gas line outside your house. He will run for you natural gas or propane through a black iron pipe within code, within safety regulations, and then he'll give you like a three-foot piece of flexible <coughs> uh, pipe that uh, you can actually buy it at Home Depot. It's what connects up to your natural gas dryer from the natural gas line uh, or propane line. It's a flexible piece of of uh, metal piping. And he'll give you a flexible piece, and you can then take this flexible piece and you can screw it on to the natural gas or propane adapter on the generator, and it will work safely within code outside of the house. So those are the details. For more on this, go to Stephen1234.com. And again, what I show you on how to hook up with a flex line, with the, the airline, is an emergency way of doing it, only not recommended for places with children or people who want to stay within code. Thank you. Okay, great stuff from Stephen Harris, as always, man. Just a, a, an incredible source of information. And uh, so next up, let's look at a uh, question here we have for Ben Falk on dealing with runoff into a pond and water filtration and trying to keep your, your pond water nice and healthy and clean and, and good for your fish, good for your livestock, etc. Ben, take it away, man. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk uh, with the Expert Council on Whole Systems Design. Um, first question here about the concern about runoff um, into a pond and filtration. Um, there's a lot of ways to naturally filter water, and basically we should think of a wetland when we're thinking of water filtration. Um, that's really the part of the ecosystem where nutrients are absorbed um, more than any other. That's kind of the buffer between like lodic um, flowing and lentic systems, still systems. So you think about like mountains when water moving from hills, mountains to ocean, it's the wetlands that are the, the main element in between, which do most of the filtration, not, you know, rivers, um, at all and ponds, um, a little bit, but not as much as wetlands, but basically still water systems with a lot of plants, a lot of surface, a lot of plants breaking the surface of the water. So wetlands are kind of the the archetype we're trying to mimic. So yeah, cattails are good. All the bulrushes are, are kind of famous for bioremediation and um, uptake of nutrients. If you Google around for a constructed wetland plant list, you're going to find the best plants at filtering water and removing contaminants and also nutrients. Um, but it doesn't seem like you should have much of an issue because if the land above you is is all forested, uh, there shouldn't be too many um, nutrients running into it. But you did say your neighbor has some horses, so you know how many horses? How are they managed? Is there erosion? What's the scale of the land? You know, is the forest land below the horses, or are they at the bottom of the forest and right above your property, and the forest is above, so it's not doing you much good? But forest land, depending on the topography and the soils and how rocky it is 
and the type of forest, um, you know, m- m- don't necessarily filter a lot of nutrients. I mean, if they're low angle slopes with deep soils and a lot of kind of undulating topography, you can get a lot of filtration benefit. If it's a steep slope with compacted soils and, you know, and they're clay, you know, it can be forest and not necessarily, um, do much filtration for you. So, um, but yeah, I think that would be my main, my main input, um, for you on the water filtration. Um, fish is great. You can make a lot of protein in a water system, as you probably know. Um, for producing, uh, fish, basically you want cold water, you want a lot of oxygen-rich water, and cold water can hold more oxygen, so keeping water cool is important, so shade is important, and then aeration can be important, but I would suggest it's better to work on passive approaches more than active first. See if you can achieve uh, your goals with passive systems. So like we have a constructed pond, for instance, that took a number of years to get to be very high water quality, but it has no active continual water input which is always a good thing if you can have it, but some, some of us can't, you know, we don't have access to a lot of water input or there's drought conditions or what have you. And we now have great water quality in a pond that has essentially no water coming into it most days of the summer, but the wetland ecosystem, the edge, which is about a third of the pond itself, surface area, has evolved enough to keep the water quality very high and the oxygen levels high and the water cool which are all of his course interrelated. So I would recommend you move in that direction of having strong wetland edges before moving the direction of just being like, Oh, I'll go out and buy a, a pump because it's a solar pump. So, so what it's, it's free, but it's not because it'll break and all that stuff costs a lot more than developing plant systems, um, which have a lot of other benefits as well besides just duration. So hope that's some good information for you. Good luck. Thank you. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. What I would kind of add to it and kind of made an uh, analogy to it, there was um, floating plants, uh, floating aquatic vegetation. It, it can be seen as really a pain in the ass because if you want to fish or something, it's in the way. Um, but it, it does a lot of things. One, it has that whole plant filtration thing going on. But Ben mentioned shade. Well, shade doesn't always have to be above the water. The shade can be at the top of the water. Um, I've, I've swam in lakes where they have, you know, a pretty good, um, aquatic floating vegetation edge layer and you're swimming in the water, you know, in, in the summer where it's fairly warm, big, big lake. So it's still pretty cool water, but it's fairly warm. And if you dive down underneath those weeds, it's amazing the drop in temperature. And that does more than just have a lower temperature. It has temperature zones, And when you have temperature zones, you get natural turnover in your water. So everything Ben said does that too. But uh, kind of thinking about that, if you have shallow and deep areas versus just deep or just shallow, then you get different temperatures. And if you add shades and other things to that, even if you don't have water coming in and out on a regular basis, what you have is, is you have this turnover of the water because cold and warm move and integrate with each other. So just my little addition there. Next up, let's hear from someone we haven't heard from from quite a while. The wild man himself, the bad boy of permaculture, the Duke of permaculture, Mr. Paul Wheaton from the wilds of Montana in Wheaton Labs. What the heck's going on up there, Paul? It's probably starting to get cold, isn't it? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from permies.com with another update from Wheaton Laboratories. I'm here with... Jocelyn. Hi. (laughs) All right. Lots to say again. Now, I'm sorry that it's been a while since I've uh, contributed to the expert council. Uh, uh, You sent an email saying it was cool. 
um, because we were like scrambling with all the DVDs pouring in and sending them out and stuff like that. So we're all caught up now. Everybody's got their DVDs. We're all, we're all set. Um, uh, if anybody wants to still get them, they're at richsoil.com slash heat. The big news right now, actually we've got two huge items right now. One uh-huh. is that we're in the throes of the Ant Village Challenge. And so as mentioned before, the, the big thing is, is we've got, uh, we had 12 spots that we opened up and then, uh, uh, people come and they, uh, pick a spot and then it's, uh, whoever. And their spot was a whole acre. They've had a whole acre to play with. Right. Mm-hmm. They've got a one acre plot to, you know, do their vision and see and so, but more importantly, to see if they can do it. Can they build a shelter? and grow a garden, do permaculture to, to grow all their food and feed themselves. The finish line is September 17th, 2017. And the, the deal, the rules state that there must be at least six ants to the finish line. For it to count, for it, for the challenge to actually happen. Yeah. And, and then one winner will be selected uh-huh. who will then get to, to stay on their acre for life. And, yes. and so, you know, rent free. Uh-huh. Um, so that's, that's the big challenge and that's the goal. That's the, the candy that you get at the end. Now, um, I, I posted some details and I didn't realize that when I listed out the particulars that, that each word of each sentence would be put under so much scrutiny. <laughs> And I thought, and so somebody asked me a month and a half ago, like, well, cause one of the things is, is it says that during this winter that's starting now, mm-hmm. then there must be the, the, the six ants must spend the winter in the, the uh, structure that they've built. Right, right. A Montana winter. So a month and a half ago, it was put to me, well, for the sake of the Ant Village Challenge, when does winter start? And so I proclaimed, I just made it up, October 15th to March 15th. And I've got my reasons for why I picked these particular dates. And I didn't think much of it. And so when we went up on October 15th to go have a look, um, one ant was clearly ready for winter. And the others were smelling a bit like grasshoppers. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've been doing other things. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's lots of things to do. I mean, it's hard yeah. to, to get ready. Mm-hmm. And so for the other five, um, so after looking around and visiting with the one ant that was ready, then it's like we, we we came up with a dealio where because basically most I think all five were in a similar state. Um, they were like one or more walls were not complete. You know, like there's some stuff to be kind of done to kind of like well, there's a big hole there that you know like a <laughs> yeah. cat could come and go. Yeah, not complete meant open. Yeah, like yeah. maybe there was a window not installed yet. Right. Um, you right. know, and, right. and right. so, and then, uh, there was no heat source. And then part of the rules state that, uh, winter camping is not allowed or window, winter camping, some kind of concept of winter camping. So it's kind of like, so we kind of clarified what that meant. And with my clarifications, there was basically a two week extension, one week to finish up walls, one week to add a heat source. And I basically proclaimed, on a whim, people should be able to get the heat uh, on any day through the winter up to 70 degrees or more. So um, one of the structures was attempting to do passive solar. And uh, I think I think that that works great, but you've got to have a really well-insulated structure for passive solar to work. 
and and they weren't going to probably get to the point of doing insulation this winter. Now, I think a few of them were kind of like, I don't mind being cold. And it's like, no, winter camping is out. That's not. So suddenly this, this the challenge is on. And the next week and a half is going to tell us whether or not it's still on. So it could be terminated in a week and a half. Whew, boy. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so we, we're we going to very quickly, because we're already halfway through our time, oh. go through each of the people very okay. quickly because we've got another topic. Josh and Ben had put together something that was scary and beautiful. It was... Not exactly uh, a debris hut, oh. but it was debris hut-esque. It was certainly far more than a debris hut. I mean, it had some serious logs in there. It was based on some native structures. It was par- yeah. partially a pit house and and partially a debris hut. You know, so that's what it struck me as, though I'm not no by no means an expert in native structures. And I, I kind of wonder if two months down the road, if it might not be as lovely as it is now right now it's it's green and lush and beautiful and and i i can't help but think that a couple of months from now it's going to be like this is where all the bugs live (laughs) (laughs) you know but we'll see um uh very creative large large for a structure like that it was quite large it was it was impressive in so many ways i'm really looking forward to seeing how it evolves over the winter Ten people sat inside it around right. a circle. So yeah. that's how large it is. And they're adding mm-hmm. a Rumford fireplace in there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so anyway, we'll see. I mean, we've yeah. got to get lots of pictures of that going. Yeah. Uh, Jim's ready to go. He's fine-tuning bits and bobs. Evan is pretty close. Uh, he's got to, He's got two walls that need to be finished, and he's currently working on a rocket mass heater in there. Right, a Walker-style stove. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's getting a lot of help from Matt Walker. Yeah, awesome. Um, and then... Uh, they're, they're doing a lot of stuff up there that's like an Amish style barn raising. Apparently, in mass, they're going around to each plot and like doing a bunch at once to kind of overnight get things uh-huh. ready. Uh-huh. Um, I haven't seen it, uh, but I've heard stories about how it's going. It's, it's very much a community effort. Uh, so Steve, uh, he, when I was up there, it was like, there weren't very many walls yet, but, but I was being told like, oh, I can throw these walls together so fast. He also had this, French drain thing going. Apparently, Steve is really enjoying personal time with a shovel. Like he just <laughs> somehow he loves to shovel. So he made this incredibly deep dr- ditch-like looking thing for a French drain. And I just want to say a French drain is a perfect solution for eight percent of the places that have put in a French drain. I think people don't understand what a French drain is designed to do. And I could probably fill an hour talking yeah, yeah. about French drains, but <laughs> you could. Janet's one that's trying to do passive solar, um, and so Janet's our only female aunt. Uh, and uh, um, over the last two weeks, ble- she had a building blitz and had some really awesome guys come out to help her. And she has about caught up uh, and surpassed where Steve is at with his structure. So she's, right. she's gotten a lot done with. Like in two and a half weeks yeah. or something. Yeah. She set up a workshop and, yeah. and now boom, baby. Yeah. All right. Um, Sean, uh, I heard that his heat source is now installed yeah. and he had all of his walls ready to, pretty much ready to go. There were just a couple of spots where it's like, ah, oh, you got to kind of cobble something together in that little corner there. There's a little opening you see outside. Yeah. <laughs> and, but his green roof needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah, that's part of the getting past the winter camping is is the roof needs to 
have dirt and stuff on it, not just plastic. So, uh, yeah, because that won't be very good for the winter if it just has plastic on wood. So I think the, the grasshoppers have moved on, and we do have six ants that are going to hopefully make it to the finish line September 10th of 2017. It's big. It's, it's on. It's happening. Mm. Uh, we'll see how they do this winter. Mm-hmm. More more news as events warrant. <laughs> okay, the other big thing is is that uh, today we announced the Permaculture Boot Camp, uh, including a Boots to Roots program. And so if, uh, in a nutshell, trying to do this really quick, the days for these folks will be really structured. We've had a lot of people who've come, and they really want a lot of structure. Um, and... Uh, uh, and they want to, you know, specific experiences and strong leadership. So we've arranged that. Um, and so people, you know, will get up at 7 a.m. They'll, they'll cook collectively, get to, they'll be on site at 8 a.m. working. Um, and there'll be very definite, clear things that will be done each day, each week, each month. And, um, uh, they'll have access to a bunk and the house and, uh, food staples. And then they'll do their own cooking. Yeah, there's there's so many different things that can be done here. Experience with junk pole fences, with hugel culture, with wafatis, with um, and just regular homestead maintenance and right and seeding and mulching and planting and uh, so many different things that they could experience. And the big benefit, the big way that this is different from a woofer program is not only I mean a lot of woofer programs are unstructured, mm-hmm. and uh, but this will be very structured. But the big 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 difference is that. If somebody sticks to the program for 18 months, we will set them up with what we call deep roots. And so basically, it's the same thing as the prize that's at the end of the line for the ants. Yeah. Uh, deep roots is an acre. And um, uh, though Rentless. you yeah, though you have access to the other over 200 acres here, which has really helped the ants in building their homes. So um, starting February 4th. Fred and Kai will be leading it, and they're both awesome, awesome guys. Lots to learn from those two. Right. They're already putting together good, strong structure, and these guys are already hardworking guys. Yeah. And so we're already – they do lots. That's at permies.com forward slash boot. Right. Like what you wear on your feet. Now, some people will come and be part of our boot program for just – uh, a couple of weeks or a couple of days, but I think eventually, because we're going to limit this to six people, and so eventually it's going to only be the people that are doing the 18-month thing. Um, all Thanks, right. Jack. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Thanks. I really have loved over the years watching the evolution of Paul's efforts. Um, as Paul was uh, kind of building toward what he's doing now, he got some heat from people that said, well, Paul talks a lot, but he doesn't do a lot. Um, and I think it was about you know, having land. Paul had gotten into some situations where it was kind of a setback for him as far as access, and uh, he solved that problem for himself, and now he's doing some pretty amazing things, and he's empowering others to be part of it and to gain knowledge and skills and to see what can be done. That's what Wheaton Labs is all about, and I'm uh, very happy to call Paul my friend and uh, have have really, like I said, really enjoyed watching over, oh, I guess it's been six six or seven years since I met Paul online and watching this evolution, and uh, just awesome stuff. So next up, I have a question for me, and if I, if I did it wrong, it could become an entire episode, but it fits really well with some of the stuff I've been talking about this week. I talked about 
joining the quiet insurrection on Tuesday this week. And then yesterday I had a, a, a really serious message in our, our, our closing segment for the young people out there. And today I'm going through my stuff to see what I can do for today. And I find this from Brian. And Brian's writing a book. I'll read his whole email to you. So he's actually got five questions for me, which I usually don't do on air, but I think I can do these given the context that they can come out of with what I've talked about this week. And I think it's a good wrap-up for this week because I have had a lot of message for the younger generation out there, the millennial generation, and I've had a lot of concern for them. Um, I, I have always been concerned for you guys. Because I do think that the economic outlook for you guys is not the greatest in the world. I, I do. Um, <clears throat> but I always also kind of like thought, well, grow up, suck it up, and deal with it. And uh, I still feel that way. But I've also, in seeing the the fear in in the, this this generation, the uh, the softness, I, I, I'm actually more concerned for you now because of that than what you face. And I would be just as concerned if you were like that in 1985 when I was a teenager, right? Because that's that's something that, that has been done to you, but it's up to you to kind of figure out what to do about it. And I think what Brian's trying to do is figure out how to help other people figure out what to do it. So here is uh, what Brian has to say. It says, Jack, what do you think the most important hard skills for the average American or young people just entering the real world are? You've inspired me to get shit done, and I'm writing a book about essential skills that have been lost in our modern society. I need to stick to the Jack email format with the question above, but here are the questions I've been asking on social media. Question number one. What is the mo most important skill you think every person first going out into the world should know? That's a deep one. That's a deep one, and, and what I have to immediately do, even though you want to go to hard skills, is pull off, because knowing how to do any one thing in of itself is, is not really going to solve any problems for you. I was thinking today I need to plug a tire on my tractor, and I was thinking how when I talked about that the first time online on the show here, I got a question, about how, well, how do you do that? And I was thinking to myself, well, who the hell doesn't know how to plug a, a, a tire? And then I was thinking, well, what, Jack, when was the first time you plugged a tire? I guess, well, I guess with my old man when I was eight years old. Well, do you think everybody had that background? No. Okay. So the, 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 the actual hard skills are important, but I think that can largely be dependent upon what you want to do in life and where you want to go in life and, and what's around you and what opportunities avail themselves to you. I think the most important skill that every young person should have going into the real world is the skill of knowing how to learn how to do shit. Like, there's no excuse today. I mean, I've, I've said this before, but like when I was like seven, eight years old, while I did have, you know, a father that ran a tire station teaching me how to plug a tire, he worked seven days a week and I had no one to teach me how to fish. I tied fish hooks on with overhand knots. I didn't know how to do, you know, a, a clinch knot or a palmer knot. And I learned how to fish by, you know, saving up money to be able to buy magazines like Field and Stream and Outdoor Life and eventually conning, you know, a parent or a grandparent into buying me a subscription so it would show up every month. And, and, and that's what it took to be able to learn how to do something like fish. Well, today you go to YouTube, you can learn how to tie knots, how to tie flies, how to tie rigs. About, I mean, you can learn everything. But the problem is so many, so many people are really good at paying attention to looking at information about how to do things, but then they don't, they don't take the next step and actually try it. So I, I think the most important skill that a young person going out into our world today can, can, can have 
is the, the skill of being able to, how to uh, of being able to independently learn and being willing to try and fail and keep at it until you get it right. Because there's nothing that you want to know how to do today from how to start a fire to how to change a starter motor uh, to how to do an oil change to how to write a resume. To, uh, you, I don't care if it's a hard skill or a soft skill. If you'll take the time, you can learn how to do it. And you have in your youth an abundance of something that those of us who are established in our careers don't have, and that is time. And I'll save my thoughts on that for another question. He says, what important skill do you think is most lacking in modern society? <laughs> I think I might have just answered that question, honestly. Really. I mean, there's so many people out there that just won't figure out how to get shit done. And instead, they want someone else to do it for them. Or if it's hard, they're not going to do it or what have you. Uh, so maybe that's one of them. But... I think that that skill is honestly another skill. It's more of a soft skill. And we talked about it a lot this week. It's critical thinking. I mean, if, if modern society was able to think critically, we wouldn't make a decision right now on who's going to run our country between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Um, if, if, if modern society was adept at critical thinking, the, the, the mass media would look a lot different because no one would pay attention to what they're doing. If you look at the majority of problems that we have in this country, it's not that we don't have solutions to them. It's that people are being run all over the place so they don't focus on the solutions, and that's because they don't think critically. They're not able to discern between that which you can affect and that which you can't affect. They spend all of their time being angry about things that, yes, are concerning, but yet they have no direct impact on and almost no time focusing on the things that they do have impact on. So the ability to critically think and to discern between that which you can influence and that which simply concerns you is probably the most lacking skill in society because all the hard skills can be learned as needed. Um, what is the number one skill that you do not possess that you wish you did? Now we're going to go to more of a, a, a real, like an actual skill. Um, I would say the two things that I, I really should take time to teach myself and I just don't have the time to at this point in my life, is some more understanding of basic programming and graphic arts. And the reason I don't is because they're so easy to purchase. If I need a logo done, I got only 300 bucks and it's done. And, and, and the time I would spend to learn how to do that will, will cost me more than $300 in lost time. But the truth is, if I, if I had learned how to do that, or if I would learn how to do that, and I can do some basic stuff. I mean, we're talking Microsoft Paint here. We're not talking Photoshop. Um, but if I'd learn a little bit more of that, I could put more creative value and more production value into some of the things that I do, uh, and that would be useful. And I would because it because the problem with graphic artistry is it even though you can buy it as a commodity, it costs you every time. And with my desire to always build these little satellite communities and stuff like that, if I had that along with some custom programming knowledge, um, I would be able to move quicker with a lot of these things and just do them myself. Here's the thing about that, though. Here's the thing, and this is why I don't go down that road. It's a time suck. That's why graphic artists, good ones, cost money, because there's every little nitpicking thing you got to do to get it just the way you want it and what have you. And the programming, you know, you, you, you program something, it works sort of, and you have to debug it and punch list it and all. And it, it, it takes a tremendous amount of time. And if it was, if I was doing those things, I wouldn't be on the microphone talking to you. So 
I don't know if I'm, I'm taking an easy out on that, saying, well, yeah, I wish I had these, but uh, it doesn't make sense for me. But if I, had, if I could go back, this is the thing, if I could go back to being you know, 20 years old, 21 years old, straight out of the Army, and had locked myself into a room for six months and taught myself you know, MySQL databases and PHP, basic PHP uh, programming and things like that, And as the internet had come around, had been able to take all the ideas in my head and execute them into actual things, I, I, I'd be a millionaire times 20 today. And I know that. And, and I've kind of set my course now, but if I could go back and add a skill at the age that a lot of people are trying to figure out how to learn stuff, those would be two that I, I would definitely look at. Um, list five skills that every American should have to be self-reliant. Okay. Critical thinking, that would be uh, definitely one. Um, but I'm, I'm going to try to take a little bit of a different tact on this and go to some hard skills, because I know that's what you're looking for. Um, I think that Americans should have the skill set of basic vehicle maintenance and repair. Being able to do the basic maintenance and repair on your vehicles. And as vehicles become more and more sophisticated, that's becoming more and more difficult. But I'm talking about changing a tire. I'm talking about plugging a, a tire with a hole in it. I'm talking about, uh, you know, if, if there's a problem, being able to figure what's wrong and can you fix it. Being able to change a fan belt. Being able to change a hose. Right? Um, being able to deal with if your vehicle's broken down on the side of the road, knowing what to do so you don't get run over or hit or killed, and deal with getting your vehicle off the road, that type of thing. So being able to handle that, um, that that's something that do, I see a lot of people doesn't exist. They if they're if they're if they're a quart low on oil, and they're going to have kind of the car checked out by the mechanic, they don't even know how to add a quart of oil. They don't even know they're a quart low, low because they don't know how to check their oil. So I'd say kind of that that basic. Um, vehicle maintenance would be one of those things. Um, developing basic financial aptitude. Understanding terminology and vocabulary, uh, I think really makes sense. Just finding out for the financial term of the day from Investopedia. And just having a basic understanding and knowledge of the economic system. Because so much of what is presented to you as being an insurmountable problem or this is why the stock market's crash or whatever is bullshit. And as soon as you understand the terminology, you're able to wade through that bullshit. So I think a good financial understanding how to, you know, manage your money, how to invest your money, how to, how to stay out of debt, how to pay down debt, uh, how to identify good opportunities and, and hedge your risk when you're, when you're taking an opportunity. That would be another one of those five skills that I would definitely say that, that That people need to be self-reliant um, in the modern world. I would say being able to grow your own food is a huge thing, even if you don't do it all the time. The fact that if you end up in a situation where your life takes a dramatic turn and you have to backscale, that you could do it, that you know what to do. And it's always better to have you know some little piece of ground prepared or something like that, but You know, there are, there are points where people get into a part of their life where maybe they get a great job and they're traveling all the time and it's just not practical. But if they have that knowledge and that, that job goes away or that lifestyle change comes and wherever they are, even if they're, you know, having to do it kind of the gorilla gardening style, you know, for a few bucks and seed can produce food that's healthy for them to eat. That's, that, that's something you're going to have to, you know, do every single day. You're going to have to eat every single day. So if you can learn ways to produce food, I think 
you have a, a tremendous edge on those that don't know how to do it if the time should come that you ever need to. Um, I would say basic construction techniques. You know, you don't have to necessarily be like a master woodworker or be able to frame a house, but being knowing how to use basic hand and power tools, how to build basic things from wood, how to fix basic things that go wrong in your home that are, you know, construction oriented, uh, things like, you know, if a door won't close right, well, how do you fix that? How do you identify what's What's wrong? Is it something? Is it, does it need a little bit of the uh, edge plane? Is it? Is it the frame has shifted? Is it because the hinges are off? You know, just being able to do the basic home maintenance because that that stuff's expensive when you have somebody else do it. And I mean, I'm guilty myself just because of the time issue at times of going just call somebody and get that done, right? But when I didn't have money, I never did that. When I grew up as a kid, I never saw my father or my grandfather call a guy. You know what calling a guy was? Well. John Slifko, like was one of Dad's best friends all the way back to the Vietnam years, um, was you know a really good mechanic. My dad was a, a good shade tree mechanic. John was a really good mechanic. But even though John had a mechanic shop, shop they were friends. So calling a guy was, hey John, can you come by on the way home today and take a look at something? I can't figure it out. Or he'd call him up and tell him what his problem was, and John would say, here. Now, John's not going to do that for everybody because he's got to make a living, but since they were friends, they would share that information. And if, if, if John had needed something that my father needed, then definitely it would have went the other way. And that was you know the same type of thing. I'm going to call your Uncle Pete and find out about this because he knows about these kind of things. That was calling a guy. like So I guess another skill then on top of that would be knowing how to network. So networking, I think, is something that... Because of Facebook and, and Instagram and, and LinkedIn and all this shit, people think that they're well-networked today. But just because you have a whole bunch of followers doesn't mean you're well-networked because they all love what you're doing, but when you need something, are they going to be there for you? Networking means that you have people that you form meaningful relationships with that if they can help you, they feel obligated to at least try. Now, they might not put their whole life on hold for you or whatever, but if you, uh, like I have an email from a guy right now that I've, I've basically said, help help me help you, give me a little summary that, that has to take a job. And he's been kind of on his own and is an entrepreneur for uh, about five or six years. And I'll use my assets to try to find him some sort of an opportunity as long as he can you know, condense down into a paragraph what his, what his skill set and his offering is. Because I'm not going to do that work for him, but I'll do what I can for him. Because he's a friend, because he's done work for me, because we've worked together on other things. We are truly part of a network where just because, like says, somebody friended you up on Facebook and always likes your post does not mean you're networked. And the young people of today think they're networked because they're networked on a computer. But are you networked into the hearts and souls and minds of the people that, that you're integrated with? And one way you can know that is... All the people you think you can depend on, I want you to imagine that they picked the phone up today and they called you and they said, hey, uh, I'm out of work, I need a job, can you help me? And you'd be able to do something for them, right? And if you wouldn't be willing or can't do something for them, odds are they're not willing or can't do something for you. Now, it might be just a logistical thing. Like if you know somebody that has like owns three companies and knows a lot of other entrepreneurs and all, they might be much more able to help you get a job than you would be able to help them get a job. And that's fine. So, but if you wouldn't even try, like if you if you could and you wouldn't, if it was a little bit hard and you wouldn't, then they probably wouldn't for you either. And that's a good way to kind of know the value of your network now. Like, and I think that's a really lacking skill. And when I was growing up, 
no one called it networking. They just called it friends. Right? And that's, and all of the people that I grew up with, the men that I grew up around, they had this network of friends that you could call. And remember, there's no cell phones or pagers or shit like that. That meant calling somebody's house. And if they weren't there, there was no answering machine. That meant hopefully somebody answered the phone and you said, hey, uh, is, is, is Tom around? And they, no, Tom's not here. Hey, t Tom, tell Tom Jack called. And if you could call me back, I got a question about ABC. And then Tom called back. Or Tom came by the house because just because he call, he could call back and you're not available, right? That's how it was. So Tom might come by. Oh, I heard you were looking for this. Oh yeah, here's how that works, you know. Or let me talk to Petey for you. He knows that. That's how things were back then. And we've definitely lost that skill. I think that's four. And I would say five is being able to physically defend yourself and others. And you know that can be martial arts. That can be being trained with a gun, what have you. But it also requires a certain level level of mental conditioning. Because I'm a guy that can look after myself physically, uh, no doubt about that. But I can also probably go out and one day, and if I want to, I can find 20 guys that can kick my ass and get them to do it, right? And, and, and end up in a really bad way after about two. Uh, so no matter how physically adept you are, there's going to be somebody bigger and stronger than you. So sometimes when I'm, I'm doing some training with people that are a lot smaller than me, they're like, well, if a guy your size, like, well, maybe if you learn this, maybe not. But yeah, it's, it's, I just, it, don't think that there's not some guy out there with no neck that can't rip my head off. Right. So being able to defend yourself is about more than the physicality, though that's important, because a lot of times what the physicality is, is the ability to break contact so that you can retreat because you're smart enough to know that this guy named Earth with one eyebrow, right, who has no neck and who lives to kill people can take you physically. you know. And if it's not a situation that calls for lethal force or you don't have that option, then you need to extract yourself. You need to stay out of the problem in the first place. You need to have your head up and your ears open and situational awareness that goes on with that. So self-defense to me is not just about being trained with a gun and being trained in, in some sort of physical fighting, but being trained to understand and recognize dangerous situations. Because the danger with the skill of self-defense is it's a skill that you could live your entire life, never have, and never need. Okay, There are people that walk through their whole lives, they never get in a fight with anybody, they never shove anybody, nobody ever shoves them, nobody ever attacks them. It happens. And if you need the skill, a fraction of a second, and you can be seriously injured or dead. And you'll live your life more confidently. You'll have grit and determination and a will to get things done if you have the ability to defend yourself. And that doesn't always mean being like cock strong and stupid. That's, that's not what it means at all. So that doesn't mean that, well, I'll walk down any dark alley because I'm freaking Mr. Badass and yay, though I walk through the shallow of the valley of death. Bullshit. That means that's a dangerous place. I'm not going to go there. That means I can go all out all the time because I'm not going to put myself into any dangerous situations. And if they do come up, I'm going to recognize them and react to them. So I would say self-defense. And he says, finally, what's your biggest goal or dream? And on a scale of 1 to 10, what is the impact of lack of skills and having or not having accomplished this? Um, I think one of my big goals in life is I would like to have a really big piece of land. And not so much for a farm. I mean, I think if I wanted that, I could do that tomorrow. If I want, if I wanted to go full time farming, I could go get a loan, you know, an ag loan, and I could go and I, I'd have to quit doing this, 
But I could go make a go of it as a farmer. I could make that model work if I wanted. I, I really want more of a getaway place. I want a place, I'm talking a couple hundred acres where I can hunt and fish and stuff like that and, and hang out with people and what have you and just get away from it all. And uh, as far as how is the lack of skills hurting that, it's really not uh, at all. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so because right now what I do is I make a determination on what I want more. You know, what I want more. As far as what my, my dream in life always was, my dream in life always was to be in a position where I could help people, where I didn't have to worry about paying my bills for a second, uh, and I could exercise my greatest skill that I think I personally have, which is teaching. And I would say that that's exactly where I am. That, 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 you know, that kind of realistic dream that I like, if I hit the water lottery dream or whatever, if I hit a really big dream, I'm going to go buy, you know, a thousand acres, a, a ranch or something and, and hunt and fish the rest of my life. Not that, but, but like the, the, the realistic dream of what to do with myself. Because this is the reality. If somebody walked up to me right now and said, Jack, you know what? I've been watching you for years and, uh, you've done a lot of good for a lot of people and I'm wealthier than I need to be. Here's a check for $20 million. The first thing I would do is faint. Then when I got up, I would be like, I, I really can't do, I, I, I can't, I can't take this, you know. And the person said, well, you're getting it and there's nothing you can do about it and I'm going to give it to you and I really don't need it. I really don't need it and I think you'll do better with it than somebody else. Once I kind of pulled myself together, I can tell you that there might be a week or two to go by where I'd say, you know what, we're going to be listening to TSP Rewind. But it wouldn't be long before you'd hear me come back on the air and say, hello, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. And I think that's how you know you're living your dream. If somebody would give you enough money that you never had to lift a finger again for the rest of your life and you wouldn't stop doing what you're doing, you're living your dream. How important are skills to my success in that? On a scale of 1 to 10? 10. 10. And they were skills learned in life through an attitude of, I'm going to figure shit out. So I hope that uh, that's a good kind of playbook for a lot of you folks that are you know, in your 20s, in your early 30s, in your teens that listen to the show. Because, I mean, the reality is you have a better opportunity, a better opportunity than any time in history. All the this, all this stuff that you're told about how hard it is for you, it's not quite true. And we'll hold that for the song of the day. With that, if you like this show and the work that I do, do consider joining the member support brigade. You can do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members to learn more. When you click on members, you'll be able to see all of the vendors that give you discounts. And I'm working on a really great one, guys. I'm so close with this one. Um, but I, I just added uh, a new one this week. Um, the Forward, Forward Observer subscription is, is a really good deal. It's 99 bucks a year, and it's, it provides a weekly briefing on what's going on out there in the world from a threat standpoint. Uh, gives you access to seminars and, and additional information. And I got you guys a 10% discount on that when I interviewed San, Samuel Culper this week. I also have another discount. It's in the MSB, but I haven't formally announced it yet. I'll be announcing it in a blog post today. Um, in addition to this uh, announcement about Samuel Culper and uh, Ford Observer, uh, but it's called the Shack Deer Blinds or Hunting Blinds. Uh, really great hunting blinds. I got you guys a good discount on those too. And yes, they could ship them. I was like, can you really? Do? They're like, yeah. I'm like, so some of you that uh, have big deer leases and all, and might be looking for uh, new hunting blinds. I got you guys a great discount on some pretty cool hunting blinds. So that's just two examples of uh, what you get discounts on in the MSB. And again, a formal announcement will be coming out on both of those uh, later today in a blog post. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. 
Anyway, if you sign up for the MSB, you can support the work we do. It's 50 bucks a year or five bucks a month. Uh, it's really not much. It comes out to 18 cents an episode. So if you feel like you get 18 cents of value out of this show, consider joining the MSB and uh, show your support to us that way. Then the uh, painless way to show us your support is do your Amazon shopping through TSPAS. You go to tspaz.com, you click a link, you go to Amazon, you buy your stuff. For instance, I don't know who you are, but I know one of you, and it's an adult based on the size, is going to be... Darth Vader for Halloween. Yep, because somebody bought a Darth Vader costume and Darth Vader gloves through T-Spaz. And we get credit for that. Now, I didn't ever feature that, and I don't think I ever will as item of the day, but it, it goes to show how painless it can be. That guy was going to, I guarantee you, he like, you know what, to support Jack today, I'm going to go buy a Darth Vader suit. Uh, he was like, I'm going to buy a Darth Vader suit through Jack's link because I was going to buy it anyway, and it doesn't cost me nothing. So that's just a really great way. And then I try to give back, guys, always. So... Every day I put up an item for you. Today's item are these little yellow uh, gas can jug vents like they used to have on gas cans when I was a kid, right? You were going to pour gas, you opened a little vent, you you know took your nozzle of your gas can, you stuck it in your car or, what, or your lawnmower or whatever, and you poured it, and the gas flowed the right freaking way because that's how gas flows right. That's how any liquid flows out of a container. you got to have a vent on the other side. Guys, when I was a kid, we used to buy juice and big cans, like big giant like cans, and you had a thing called a can opener, different kind of can opener than you're thinking of, but most of you young folks have never seen, had a little point on it, and you put a hole in one side and a hole in the other, and then when you poured your juice, it would flow right. Because there was a hole on both sides, so air could get in while the fluid came out. All right? Pretty simple. Same way you guys shotgun a beer, you college kids, right? You take the beer, you put up, stick a hole in the bottom, boom, down it goes. Don't do that. Beer's meant to be enjoyed, not to make you sick. But anyway, right? So that's a problem with gas cans today. So there's these little vent taps, and you can take a drill and a new gas can, and you're not supposed to do this, but I do it anyway, and you drill a hole in the thing, and you push this thing in there, and then you have a vent. And there's some other modifications you can make. I put up a, a, an e, a video today in the, in the show notes that show you how to modify a gas can so you can pick it up, push the button, and dump the gas in without having to deal with that little lever and all that other crap and the locking mechanism. All the nightmare the federal government has put into the manufacturer of these cans that doesn't really do any good because I'm going to tell you what happens. Because of this, because of all this crap they've done, an awful lot of gas is spilled. Now, when you spill that gas compared to any little bit of uh, vapor that may have escaped from the can because it wasn't done this weird-ass way, you've, you've, you've lost any environmental impact to the positive that you had before. And spilled gas is dangerous. I think these new cans are dangerous. I think this makes them safer. And uh, you can learn more about it and see a really great video from a group called Dual Survivalists on how to fix a gas can. Now, the thing is, in their video, they use a, uh, a valve stem for a tire for the vent. I found you good-fitting vents... And they're a great deal. Uh, you get 25 of them for like 12 bucks or something like that. And that means you can get all your cans in good working order. Check it out. Check out the video from Dual Survivalist. It's a pretty cool one, and it's a little bit humorous as well. Next up, you can also support the show by shopping in the TSP Business Directory. Our directory supporter of the day-to-day -day is Zion Systems. They're a premier, premier provider of 72-hour emergency kits. They offer a gear replacement guarantee, and you can use the code TSPC2016 for a 5% discount on all of their systems from Zion Systems. And if you use any of their stuff out of their kits uh, in an actual emergency, they have a lifetime replacement of that item. Only if you use it for an emergency, though, uh, that's, that's a pretty... Pretty good deal. 
right, and uh, now we're up for our song of the day. So I was trying to kick around different songs today, and I always like to leave Friday songs kind of upbeat rock and roll stuff. I don't like like you know anything that's really too deep for the weekend. Right, you know, I'm not going to be playing uh, "On the Turning Away" by Pink Floyd on a Friday. You know, it's a deep song that makes you think and makes you feel and makes you feel kind of so- sad and, and whatever and question things. Uh, on a weekend, I want to leave you with like something kick ass. So I was thinking, like, what song do I like? Whenever it comes on my playlist or on Pandora or whatever, like, like that's cool. Even if I don't really care that much for the message or whatever. What? And I was thinking, "Summer of '69" by Brian Adams. Yeah. So yeah, I'll play that today. And then I, this question for the young people, and then this you know whole way this show came together. I thought you know what a great message because this is what I want to tell you something. Well, first of all, when Mr. Brian Adams was uh, looking at the year 1969 for real, he was 10 years old. This song is not a true song. This is a production song for, you know made for an artist to sing because Brian Adams was born in 1959. Um, It was this song was released in '84, I think '84, '82, somewhere around there. So this song was designed to play to the mindset of the person that was 18 to 20 years old, maybe 14 to 20 years old in 1969. Men that had come up through the Vietnam years and, and made it out the other side, either by not going or by getting going and coming back, uh, but had also come up kind of with like the the last bit of true nostalgic America, at least in their minds. And, you know, the best days of my life is a line in this song. And it was designed to appeal to that nostalgia in the individual. Okay? And there's something true about that. When I look back to the 1980s and growing up with a gun in my hand, running around the mountains with my friends, Heath, Heath and Kenny, you know, and Rich, and, and, and my, my high school girlfriends, and getting my first car, and, 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 and going out to this place called the Whimsy and going swimming in this ice-cold water, and uh, drinking beer and running from the cops and all of that stuff, they were some of the best days of my life in some ways. I'll never have that in my life again. I'll never have that in my life again. Are they the best days of my life? I think today is the best days of my life. I look at my wife, my grandkids, my son, my daughter-in-law, my dogs, my ducks, this show, you, the community. I think I had, I didn't have a pot to piss in in 1986, but there was still something really special about it. Now here's where that's good. As an adult, as a grown-up, as an older person looking back, it's wonderful to have those memories and value them. When the nostalgia becomes contagious and attached to the time, so that the person that's 20 years younger than you is thinking, gee, I wish I grew up in 1985. Those weren't such great years because it was 1985. They were great years because I was 16, 17 years old. And I was behaving as an old kid, and I was able, and I was able to be that way. I was able to just be in the moment and live and not worry about responsibilities because I didn't have any yet. And that's what I was talking about the other day. Youth is wasted on the young. You guys that think it's so tough right now, one day you'll look back 20 years from now and think, those are the best days of my life. Live today like they are. And then you'll also be able to say 20 years from now, those were great days. And in some ways, they're the best days of my life. My overall best days are yet to come. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I got my first real six string Bought it the five and done Played it till my fingers bled 
Who's that? Nobody. I said, who's that? I said, nobody. 